caution. What you are about to listen to could be dangerous for anyone wishing to live a normal, safe life at the end of a cheesy cul-de-sac. Back to Jerusalem podcasts are not made in sterile recording studios with professional DJs, but instead behind enemy lines with horrible acoustics, bad internet connections, and suspicious-looking coffee. Listening to Back to Jerusalem podcast could include unwanted side effects like selling your house, leaving your boring job, and uncontrollable desires to speak strange foreign languages. So buckle up, strap in, and hold on, because this is Fast Train, baby, to all those places your mother warned you about. And now, for your host, the man known for having a radio face, Eugene Bach, coming to you live on delay in 5, 4, 3, 2... Hello and welcome to another Back to Jerusalem podcast. I am Eugene Bach and today we have something special for you. We have a pastor who was actually in Brussels when a bomb went off at the airport. We're going to go to him now. Hey, Pastor Pitch, you there? Yeah, I'm here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, so I know that you have just returned back home after returning from Brussels, so I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, so can, can you just tell me what it's been like after you've returned back? Have you been ha, have a lot of family members been contacting you or uh, have you been contacting them? What's, what's it been like now that you are back home? Well, I got home last night and it's um – it's approaching evening here now, so my immediate family was, you know, at the house by the time I got here from the airport, and um, pretty much everybody else I touched base with through email and um, Facebook, you know, just to let them know I was home. You were transferring, right? You were, from what I understand, you were going from a missions trip back home, so you were already on your way back home uh, when you were transferring in Brussels, at the Brussels airport. What happened was I was in Sierra Leone doing crusades and pastors' conferences, and ironically, the crusades were to mostly Muslims. Um, by the way, we had good success. We had about three thousand people born again at those crusades. Yeah, I, I saw that on your uh, on one of your Facebook posts how you were comparing that to the life that Christians give and to the the death and destruction that kind of come through that the the Muslim faith. And, uh, yeah. and and how one yeah one side is taking life and one side is giving life. I thought that was a really uh, a, a really amazing comparison. Well, it's certainly a poignant comparison at this point in time because literally we had just been you know sacrificially going into a situation to bring hope and life in Sierra Leone. But I was supposed to leave on uh, Sierra Leone on Sunday night, and the Brussels Airlines. Uh, plane had some mechanical problems, so they delayed the flight exactly 24 hours. Otherwise, I would have been um, transferring from the Brussels, or the Sierra Leone to Brussels flight on Monday instead of Tuesday. But as it as it resulted, I ended up at 5:30 a.m. Tuesday morning at the Brussels airport. And and you were there for a layover. How long were you there at the Brussels airport on Tuesday morning? Uh, but, but how long were you supposed to be there, I should say? Not how long were you there, but how long were you supposed to be there? Supposed to fly out at noon, and what happened was that when I, because they messed up the Brussels Airlines flight, the 24-hour delay, 
I had to go to the United Ticket Desk when they opened, and they opened at um, 7 o'clock. So about 7.15, I got my ticket, and then I went to sit at my gate, you know, just waiting for my flight a few hours, just going to sit there and read a while. And can can you kind of walk us through from that time? So once you had your boarding pass, you're sitting at your gate. Um, what what started? What what happened? Like at the moment that you know all the panic and everything, the explosions. And if, if, did you feel the explosions? No, I I was at um, I was between gate eight and gate eleven, which is roughly a um, hundred yards from the main terminal. It's connected to the main terminal, but you go through a bunch of stuff in the main terminal to get there. The explosions were in the main terminal, and we did not hear or feel the explosions. But what happened was they immediately started doing a sound kind of like a fire drill through the intercom, and they said, um, emergency evacuation, everybody in Terminal B moved to Gate 40, which is the very end of the terminal. So we didn't know if it was a drill or what initially, but as we started moving, um, there were staff members, you know how they have all these little kiosks in the airports and so forth? They were quickly closing up their little kiosks, and some of them were crying and talking on their cell phones. So we thought it was more than a drill, but honestly, nobody knew exactly what had transpired. And then they marched us uh, to the end of the terminal. And how many, how many people were and you we traveling made... with? Huh? How, may, how many people were you traveling with? Were you traveling alone, or were you by yourself? I was by myself, yeah. Okay, and so now you're moving by yourself. You don't know if it's a drill or if it's the real thing, but there's there's uh, everybody's moving to gate 40. Correct, and, and they were pretty lackadaisical about it. Um, but a crowd kind of caught up with us from behind, moving at a, a more rapid pace, and that accelerated things a little bit. But we got to gate 40, and for probably – you know, the intercom started going off somewhere after 8 o'clock, a little after 8 o'clock. Then somewhere around 8.15, we got to the end of the terminal, and uh, then they came back on. It was, it was chiming the whole time, but they came back on about 8.15 or 8.20, and they said immediately um, move to the exits and exit the terminal at gate 40, and they were going quickly, quickly, and they were saying, um, don't panic, don't run, but quickly. Evacuate, evacuate. So we, you know, we obviously we assumed this was something more than a drill, but none of us knew. And is this so, um, is this uh, taking place in both French and English, or just English? I mean, what's the what's the primary language? And do you speak French? I do not speak French, and I, I Eugene, I know it sounds crazy, but all I heard was the English. I'm not certain whether they did it in French and English or not. Wow. Okay. Because I know that I know that Brussels is about seventy percent uh, foreign. Um, so it's it you know if you're going through the Brussels airport, you're 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 traveling, um, you know through the country even, especially if you're in the capital city. Um, it's not that odd to hear English as one of the main languages. I mean the the majority of Brussels is foreign, and the majority of those foreigners are from Muslim backgrounds. Yeah. Well, like you, I travel through a lot of airports. And the bilingual thing, I, I don't even notice it half the time. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that's common, I think, for Americans. We kind of just kind of block out all the other stuff that we don't understand, and then just go straight to the straight to the English. So I, I completely, I completely get it. 
So uh, from there, you guys are you guys are moved out on a bus, and uh, what's what's the situation then? the building and it was cold you know we were in at least i was in shirt sleeves no coat or anything i didn't know what the deal was but all these police vehicles were pulling up and emergency vehicles were pulling up uh then they brought some buses around and as you say they began to transport us in the buses we thought they were taking us off the the property but they took us uh, to the far edge of the airport property to a massive hangar that had like four 727s, 737, 747s, whatever they were, big planes. And we waited while they moved one of the planes, and then we we got off the buses, went where that plane was, and then they moved progressively the other three planes. And then they locked down the hangar and and put um, soldiers and police in front of it. So we, obviously we knew it was something more than a drill, but nobody could tell us anything. And uh, nobody seemed to be in charge. I'm not taking um, a shot at the at the Brussels airport place, but it looked like they had no plan and they were kind of making it up as they went along. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this was the largest attack in their, or, you know, homegrown attack. This was the largest homegrown attack in their history. So I could, I could see them being a bit unprepared, even if they might've been a little prepared. I don't think they were prepared for anything on this scale. So that was, um, that was in, in the fact that you don't have, I'm assuming you didn't have internet, uh, on your phone. So when you're standing around doing nothing, I'm assuming you're not even able to go on and see what's happening on the news. Out of touch electronically for nine hours. They shut down everything. Um, so when they moved us to that hangar, we had no communication. Nobody knew a thing. About two hours after they put us in the hangar, somebody came over um, the inter- intercom in the hangar and said that they were the coordinator, but they had no news on what had happened and no plan. So um, uh, another hour, hour and a half went by, and some Red Cross workers started showing up, and they passed out blankets. Was this hangar so? This, was this hangar heated? No. Yeah. So you're still in a t-shirt. I'm in a shirt, not a t-shirt, but a, a regular shirt, and where if you want to sit, you're sitting on a cold concrete floor. Wow. And it was probably between two and four thousand people by the time they got everybody off the airplanes. Wow. And, and what about like the children and stuff? I mean, th- surely they're probably not covered either. So they're they're kind of exposed to this colder weather. I mean, Brussels is the northern part of Europe, so this is not you know like being in southern Italy. I mean, it's it is a and it's March. Right. Well, what they did after we had been in the hangar for probably an hour or so, they started finding airplane blankets from somewhere and bringing them to us. Okay. So, you know, people had, I had three airplane blankets, you know, kind of wrapped around me like, uh, <laughs> and I saw some people with five or six, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I mean, about the children, they were, the children were typical children. They didn't know the seriousness of the situation. They were playing and, and, uh, cutting up and trying to keep themselves entertained. I mean, they weren't panicked or crying or anything. But nobody, nobody's leaving. Nobody's coming in. This is this is all guard, armed guards, like surrounding this place to kind of contain the area that you're in. Yeah, and they closed those massive hangar doors. You know, um, I think it was twofold. Honestly, they didn't know who they had, and they wanted to. They took everybody's names slowly over the course of the nine hours. But I think they wanted to make sure they were doing some screening in case some bad guys had gotten somehow into that crowd. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, did so did did they part of it was they were protecting us, part of it was they were watching us. Yeah, did they was was there any um information that they were getting from you that you seemed that that seemed kind of odd or that you could tell that they were doing a light screening or was it just basic name, nationality, age, that kind of thing? Yeah, it was name they wouldn't know your name, your flight, your birthday, those kind of things. Okay. And you were there for nine hours. Right. Right, and they never did come out with a definitive, this is what's happened. So we heard rumors of some people were hurt. We heard rumors of a you know, bomb had gone off. We heard there were several bombs. We heard all kinds of things. But nobody in authority would tell us anything. At about 2.30, they announced they were going to explode a bomb with some kind of controlled explosion. And we found out later, actually it was about 1.30, we found out later that they had found an additional bomb, but I didn't know that until I saw it on the Internet. We just, it warned us there's going to be an explosion. Don't be afraid. We heard a thump, you know, and that was it. Well, you know, actually, uh, I've been following this quite closely on the news, and I never picked up that there was a bomb that was not, that didn't explode. Yeah, we were told later that there was a a third bomb that didn't go off. Only two of the three bombs went off. Oh, wow. Okay, because I know that there were, there were two explosions at the airport, according to the news reports that I read, and then, of course, one at a subway station that was in a heavily Muslim-populated uh, area, uh, just not too far from the airport. Well, if you, if you remember, I'm putting two and two together. One of the bombers got away. So my assumption is his bomb didn't go off, and he took off. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So that, that, that would make sense. So, uh, after the nine hours and you still, you're still not clear, like there's some scuttlebutt, there's some rumors going around that it might've been a bomb. It might've been this, it might've been that. Are you, when you were being questioned, did you ask them, you know, what's going on? I did. And they said, we don't know anything. Wow. <laughs> wow. And and the people that are asking you, is this, are these, are these police? Are these, is this airport no, personnel? No, 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 some of them were airport personnel. There was no, the cops were walking around, but the cops weren't asking us anything. Some of them were Red Cross workers and some of them were um, some kind of workers from the airport. I talked to one of the guys who worked in the airport who had been where the bombing was and he, he didn't even know the casualties. He just, told me about the magnitude of the explosions. Wow. Okay. They're not trying to hide anything from us. It's just a lot of confusion. Yeah, I can understand. I mean, this is, uh, this, I mean, Brussels, it's, this is not a, there, there are, uh, you know, more people uh, in like New York City, of course, than you would, than you would find in a, in a place like Brussels. I think the uh, entire, the entire country only has like uh, 11 million people. Or, or something like that. So I, I can I can understand that this is this is something that they were not prepared for. I don't think there's too many countries that could say that they would be prepared for this. No, and a local told me later that in that particular city, they had seven unaffiliated police departments that don't play well together, and that um, that added to the confusion after the fact. Yeah, I've actually been I've been reading about that as well. That the intelligence agencies um, there in Belgium are very much like the the pre nine eleven American intelligence agencies that uh, did not communicate with each other prior to nine eleven. So the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, they actually had separate uh, methods of communication so that they didn't give away information to another agency, and that's very much the 
way it is with the intelligence agencies there in uh, in Belgium. Right. So after nine hours, uh, you know, you you've reached that 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 uh, point where something then changes. What happens after that? After about six hours, they made an announcement saying we were all going to be taken to a military base. And so um, uh, that was about 2 o'clock, a little after 2 o'clock. So we kept thinking we were all going to go to a military base, but that never happened. And then around 4 o'clock, they announced that buses were coming soon. We didn't know. We we were thinking we were going to the military base. But um, buses finally showed up about 5 we boarded, but we had to wait for all of the buses to fill up, and we're talking about a lot of buses. And then we had a motorcade with um, cops all around us on both sides and front and back, motorcycle cops, bus cops in cars, um, you know, with all the sirens blaring. And they took us to, like, an exhibition center that had been set up as a temporary um, Red Cross facility. And I think that must be the picture that I saw. Is that the picture that I saw where people are sleeping on cots? Right, right. They had those little um, military-style folding cots. I mean, <laughs> I don't know, but I mean, your mind must have been racing. Like, what in the world is going on? Because I mean, you're a frequent traveler. I'm, I'm assuming. So, I mean, you. This is not your your first rodeo, and uh, but yet nothing like this has ever happened before. No, and, and of course, I'm I'm thinking ahead. You know that when's it going to be possible to believe, you know, and I knew that the, the airport was going to be a challenge for some time. Sometime that night, they, they rigged um, Wi-Fi at that um, uh, exhibition center. They actually had Wi-Fi on the bus that carried us from the hangar to the um, uh, Red Cross Center, and then they rigged Wi-Fi at the Red Cross Center, so we started getting some news and, you know, looking things up. They brought in a few people that had bandages from some kind of mild injuries into the Red Cross Center, too. And I assumed that they had they caught, like, a nail in the leg kind of thing. It wasn't serious stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but still, no general announcement or anything through the Red Cross. There was no flow of information. You had to go online and search it out and talk to the other people there. Um, and everybody was fried. You know, everybody was tired and fried. So they uh, they fed us. About eight and about nine, people started crashing, and I was among them. So um, once you get online for the first time and you start seeing what is taking place, because, I mean, this is – you don't have to search for this very much. I mean, this was on CNN. This was on Fox News. This was, you know, on Sky News. This was all over. So it wasn't just Europe that this hit. This was all over the world instantly. So I was watching it as it was unfolding on TV. Um, and so once you get on and you start seeing what's happening, does that does that change the 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 level of of concern for the people that are now getting information? You know, the, the people in the shelter, um, you, you've been in situations, Eugene, that other people have not. But I, I've been into war zones before where people are just kind of fried and they look like zombies. They're not crying. They're not laughing. They're not talking. They're just staring and stuff. There was a lot of that. It was like the people were, by the time we figured out what was going on, you know, 7 to 9 o'clock, there wasn't tears, but there was a lot of um, blank stares looking, you know, like, what's going to happen next kind of thing. It was, it was an interesting dynamic took place, too, that I, I should mention to you. The people tended to gather in by nationalities, 
you know, um, uh, they, they, it took time, but they polarized into different nationalities. And that was fascinating to watch as well. So they were comforting one another based on who the Indians were together, the Africans were together. You follow me? Yeah, they, so... They gravitated to one another. So, so did you... Together, they just over time gravitated to one another. So did you end up in the American colony? <laughs> Not really. I kind of I kind of lived among them, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> I, was, I was probably... You saw my, my note about the, the piece. The, the only supernatural thing that happened to me personally in the midst of all of this was I was totally at peace during all of it. There was no anxiety, and, and I had tremendous concern for the other people, but there was no sense of danger or fear or trauma or anything on my part. So I was kind of at liberty to, to kind of move around and just observe and, you know, love on people that were a little shaken up and that kind of thing, you know. Well, I mean, you have a pastor's heart. Did this open up an opportunity for you to uh, minister to people and spend time with individuals that, that uh, may be believers, may not be believers? Not in the way that you would think. I mean, uh, probably in the total time frame, I, 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 three, maybe four people, you know, I, I said something to about the Lord specifically. But mostly it was more on a, a passing level. Everybody was pretty well cloistered into their own little cubbies of folks. You know, and if I would see like a woman standing by herself with her eyes full of tears or, you know, um, a volunteer getting overwhelmed with um, people fussing out of her, that kind of thing, I would intervene. But it was, all, it was a lot of brief encounters, you know, mostly on the... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty lighthearted person, mostly a smile and a pat. Sometimes I hug around the shoulders, a few kind words, that kind of thing. And from from there, when were you allowed to leave? Well, we, did, we went to bed not knowing what was happening. Um, I woke up early, like 4 o'clock uh, Wednesday morning, and started looking on the Internet, and I saw immediately that the airports in Belgium were going to be closed indefinitely. <clears throat> so I had some friends, excuse me, in Amsterdam, sent me a note saying they'd come get me. And um, about 6 a.m., I sent them an email asking them to come get me. And uh, they came about 10.30 or so, and I went over to um, uh, to Amsterdam. So the, once you made it to the um, to the Red Cross hangar bay, um, you were not forced to stay there longer than you wanted to, or were you? No, but, no, by the time we got to the... Um, Red Cross, you could go anywhere you wanted to. You had to okay. start out and so forth, but you could leave whenever you felt like it. Okay. Well, that's... They didn't have a plan. When I left, they had no plan. I heard later they bust everybody to Germany, almost everybody to Germany for, for reflights. Yeah, you being an American, just naturally having more resources than, you know, because people that are passing through Brussels, they may be coming from Pakistan or Africa or different parts of the world that are, uh, you know, just not the, – the people aren't traveling with credit cards. Uh, they, they, you know, they, they may not be used to traveling uh, internationally. So I think there's a, there's a large number of people that are really heavily reliant upon the airport staff to, you know, what do we do next? I had a ticket that was supposed to get me to A or B, 
and now I'm not going to A or B. What do I do? And so, I mean, you've got you've got resources, you've got friends, uh, you know, in in uh, in Amsterdam. I mean, not not a lot of people have connections in Amsterdam that can say, hey, yeah, I'll just come and pick you up. So, I mean, I can understand that there's a lot of people that needed to probably be bused to another location and flown to their next de- destination at the at the you know the expense of their airline. And um, almost everybody uh, was gracious. I'm talking about the people that were part of the, um, if you want to call bombing refugees. Almost all of them were very gracious. There were a few people that got nasty, but just very, very, very few, you know. Almost everybody understood that this was a catastrophic situation and there was no plan. And, you know, the workers were not at fault. Um, but we just had to kind of go with the flow. The deal with the Netherlands, though, um, there was actually a school of ministry there I'd been wanting to visit. I ended up going there and ministering some and uh, planned to go back. So obviously the Lord didn't plan this whole situation, but um, there was some uh, divine connections involved with it. Yeah, what the what what the enemy had used to destroy and meant for bad, the uh, the, the Lord used for, for good. Exactly. So um, that from there you were then able to catch a flight and and return back home. That's an interesting term that you used. You were basically a refugee, a bombing. (laughs) You were a bombing refugee. Well, I, I have to tell you, Pastor, we are we are happy. We've um, we've uh, we've been to your church a couple times. We've met with you, and we're we're extremely excited that nothing happened to you. Um, we're very thankful that you were able to share this with us. I just want to change gears really quick before um, I le- let you go. You have just written a book that will be out soon um, that I'm now reading called "The Wife of God." And uh, I mean that's kind of a, a a bit of a interesting title to say the wife of God. Can you give us a little bit of information about this book that that will be out soon? I can. I, the, the title I chose was somewhat provocative, but it's also biblically correct in that God referred to Israel as His wife repeatedly in the Old Testament, and Himself as Israel's husband. So I, I build on the theme of Israel as the um, the wife of God, foreshadowing the church, the bride of Christ, and Jesus as the husband of the church, you know, the bridegroom in the New Testament. So the, the premise is, is really, the Bible, as you know, is all about a relationship between God and man that God initiated. And um, uh, the analogy that the Scripture paints is the relationship is supposed to be as intimate as a good marriage. And not in any kind of sexual way or physical way, but in terms of um, interacting with each other, spending time with each other, getting to know each other, loving each other. You know, um, uh, our relationship with the Lord is unique among the religions in the world because the emphasis is on love. You shall love the Lord your God. You know, the other religions are big on obey, but not so big on love. And so it's it's a love story. You know, that's what the book is, and a lot of little individual personal stories, but mostly the unfolding of the Scriptures, the plan of God from Genesis to Revelation. 
And what prompted you to, to write this? I mean, that, that, that might, because you're a pastor, so you're, you continually use good messages that the Lord gives to you, but this, you've actually, um, felt the desire to write about more extensively than just a Sunday morning service. Yeah. You know, the, the Lord's plans for Israel have always been, um, uh, close to my heart. I know the Lord has continuing plans for Israel. And honestly, I don't think many of the Jewish people realize who they are as far as being the chosen people of God. And I don't think many in the church recognize that the, uh, the Lord set Israel as, their first, as his firstborn and as a prototype for what's possible for each of us. You know, we're, we're riding on their coattails, in a sense, with this relationship with our God. So I wanted to, to paint a picture that Jews could relate to and that Christians could see a, um, an additional connection to their Jewish roots in a way perhaps they hadn't considered previously. I'm reading it right now. I'm kind of in the in the beginning parts. I started to read it on my way back from our tours in the U.S. Uh, so I was on the plane when when I started it. I found I find some of the the things that you you mentioned the analogies uh, to be very gripping. Um, I'm looking forward to finishing it. It's actually for for us here in Asia. We're we've already entered into Easter Sunday, so it's Sunday morning for us. But I I foresee that I will probably finish it by the the end of the day or the end of the day tomorrow. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, sharing this with other people. When will this book be out? In the summer. I've got it at an editor now. And the version that you've... Boy, a personal story about the... I, I think we're, 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 we're losing you a little bit, uh, Pastor Pitts. Uh, are, can you still hear us? So we lost Pastor Pitts there for a minute. We'll see, we're going to call him back and see if we can reach him again. Did I lose you? Yes, we lost you just for a minute. So uh, you were just saying that the book would be available in the summer, that it's just going through the – is it the first edit or uh, – what edit is this? first edit, and I've done some slight additions. Okay. Wow. If that's the first edit, you've, you've done really good. I, I, none of my books look like that on the first edit. My, my books are atrocious. <laughs> well, I might have had a little advantage because I did a doctoral dissertation once, but they have to be pretty well complete before you turn them in. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was, I thought that had already been edited. Wow. Um, the, the, the editors that usually work on my stuff, I, you know, I, I find the sweetest, kindest lady that I can find, uh, because I know it's going to be harsh. And, uh, and, and the, the, the woman who works on, on my books at, uh, Whitaker Publishing, she's just so nice to me and I'm appreciative. She doesn't tell me, you know, how bad my grammar is. She doesn't tell me how, you know, how hard it is to understand some of my sentence structures because there are there are ideas that I'm trying to convey that my grammar just won't keep up with <laughs> but that that was not the case that was not the case when I read yours when I read yours I thought yours had already been edited so your editors got to be a, a lot happier than than ours well listen you, you're one of my heroes Eugene I'm really um, behind you and um the work that you do, and it's a tremendous honor for me to even have you read my stuff. But, I'm not getting it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Now, you are um, there in uh, Fairfax County of Virginia, right? Yes. And in so, Houston, Virginia. 
And so if someone is living around that area of Fairfax or in the D.C. area, uh, how do they find your church? Um, we are 10922 Vale Road in Oakton, Virginia. But the, the easiest way to find us is to go online, wholeword.net. And, of course, there's a map and address and everything at the website, wholeword.net. I'm also on Wava on Saturdays at 1130, Saturday mornings. Wava is the largest Christian station in the D.C. metro, and that's the whole word for the whole world. Awesome. Thank you so much, Pastor Pitts. I really appreciate you giving up some time to be with us on this podcast, and I pray that you enjoy your time at home, enjoy your Easter, and enjoy being with your family. Thank you, brother. Bless you, and thanks for calling. All right. God bless you, too. Bye. Bye-bye. So that was Pastor Pitts, and that was, uh, to me, just a great privilege to be able to get an inside look from a pastor's perspective, not just a pastor's perspective, but someone who's coming from the mission field. You know, he was coming from Sierra Leone, ministering to Muslims, and then going directly into an area that's being attacked by Muslims. Just uh, just some really quick uh, glances at Brussels uh, and, and Belgium in general. Because there might be a couple things about Europe, or especially that part of Europe, that you might not understand. And I just want to end on these these kind of really broad strokes uh, so that you can understand a little bit more about the situation there. Because this was not just individuals from you know the Middle East or ISIS flying into to Belgium and then setting off bombs in Brussels. Many of these individuals that are involved in these attacks, they are European, not by birth, not by culture, not by language, but now they carry European passports. Brussels is actually considered to be the capital of Islam for all of Europe. So the fact that there was a bomb there at the the airport should not be that big of a of a surprise and i say that not not to be um trying to start any argument with muslims and say well all muslims are violent that's not true not all muslims are violent and as christians we need to be able to look at the bridges that we can take to engage muslims more and more but at the same time we as believers need to recognize what we're up against And Islam is not a peaceful religion. There are peaceful Muslims. The majority of Muslims are peaceful. But as I've said many times, it is in spite of, not because of, their religion. Now, Brussels is considered to be the capital of Islam for Europe. In all of Belgium, the entire number... For, for uh, Muslims makes up, almost, they say 7%, but it can be as high as 10% because of the refugees that have been flooding in that haven't yet really settled. And that number might even be higher. That means in, in Belgium, uh, a country of 11 million people, one out of every 10 people that you meet on the street depends on what street you're in. Because actually when it comes to many neighborhoods, in Belgium, many neighborhoods, and I kid you not, this is according to the most recent statistics, which have been cited quite a bit after this bombing, that more than 70% of the residents in certain neighborhoods, 70%, 
are Muslim. That would not be that alarming if you just said, well, there are certain neighborhoods that have been um, populated by immigrants, and so that makes sense. But when you see an entire country that is now 7 to 10% Muslim, the entire country, that means over a million Muslims out of 11 million people in Belgium, uh, more than a million Muslims are now living in Belgium. And the challenge with that is that only 1% of those over the age of 55 are Muslim. What does that mean? That means that the majority of the people that are considered to be Christian or active Christian are over 55. The majority of the people that are Muslim in Belgium are between the, eight, the ages of 18 and 34. The bulk of the Muslims are between 18 and 34. The people in Belgium are not having large families. The Muslims in Belgium are having large families. Uh, one study in Brussels said that practicing Catholics are only 12% of the population. The majority of people that are from Belgium are secular. And secularism cannot stand against Islam. Islam will overthrow secularism. They have an active Muslim population of over 19% in Brussels, the entire city. Belgium also has the highest per capita of jihadist fighters of any country in Europe. That means that the largest number of volunteers of people that are volunteering to go and fight together with ISIS are coming from Belgium. And the largest number of jihadists that are concentrated in any one given area in all of Europe is in Belgium. Now, the Molenbeek district of Brussels, this is a no-go zone for the police. It's a small area, but they have more than 22 mosques. More than 22 mosques, and it's a no-go zone for police. The Melenbeck district, that is the district where the subway station was bombed. So you had two bombs that went off at the, at the airport, and then one at the, the train station. That was Molenbeek. That is where they found uh, Salah Absalom, the, the, uh, the, the guy who had fled to Brussels after attacking Paris. And the reason he went to Brussels is because he was able to find a community there that hid him and would protect him. Uh, Pastor Pitts was there. He was one of the innocent people traveling through. But this was the largest attack in their history. There were three days of mourning. Three days of mourning. And leaders that don't take this serious. What I find absolutely phenomenal is that there are leaders, American leaders, some European leaders as well, that believe that global warming is a bigger threat than this. We are about to see an entire, you know, the jihad that had swept from, from the Middle East and took over Constantinople, where I was, I was just at last month, where uh, Constantinople was taken. That was the Christian capital uh, of the world, really. And it was taken out by Islam. And, and of course, that is modern day Istanbul in Turkey. And then from there into Europe. 
down into northern uh, Africa. Spain, which was a Christian kingdom, was completely taken over by Muslims in a, in, in a, in a way that the, the rape and the killing and the pillaging that took place was beyond anything that the history books can ever depict for us. Most people don't even know about it. And it was, it was dark and evil where so many people, so many Christians were killed and slaughtered. And many Christians believe that this was the, this was the end of times. This was the Armageddon. This was the final days. That's how evil it was. As at, at the time, many believed that this was Armageddon. The, the, the days of pillaging just for Istanbul alone, for Constantinople, took place for several days where children were being killed and slaughtered and laughed at. Women were being raped repeatedly over and over and over again. That swept all the way up until it was finally stopped in France. And then from there was when the very first crusades kicked off and pushed it back out of Europe, not out of Africa, but out of Europe. And then of course it went all the way to Jerusalem. Now the problem turned into war does evil things to people and out of the war with the, the crusades became a lot of the, the exploits that were evil in and of themselves. So the, the crusades, even though they started off as a noble cause to push back jihadist Islam, they ended up mimicking the enemy that they were repelling. And mimicking a lot of the same atrocities. But the church, when I say the church, the countries that had become Christian, they had, they had absorbed and, and been taken over by Muslim armies for over 500 years before they did their very first pushback. Before the very first crusade took place. For those of you that are American, that is almost twice as long as America has even been a nation. That's how long Christendom took attacks from Islam before it finally responded. This, what's taking place today in Europe, should wake up the church. Because secularism in Europe is going to be the fall of Europe. Because it will not stand against Islam. But, with these new Muslims coming into Europe, Christians have a point they have a part to play where they can engage Muslims for the very first time and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that's not enough either. Join together with Back to Jerusalem as we go to the heart of Islam, as we go to the heart of ISIS territory. The very place where these attackers are being trained and sent out from is exactly where Back to Jerusalem missionaries are going, and we will conquer we will see the enemy fall. Why? Why can I say that? Because I've read the end of the book. I've, I, I've, I've seen the last days as mapped out in the Bible. And I've seen what the truth of Jesus Christ can do against the lies of the enemy over and over and over again. Every tongue has not confessed every every ear has not heard the good news of jesus christ we need and will there be resistance yes there will be will these will these entire areas be turned into christian following nations probably not but there are large numbers of people who never even had the chance to accept jesus christ and i'm giving this message right now on easter sunday
It's Easter Sunday. It's about almost six o'clock a.m. on Easter Sunday here in China. And one of the things that I just want to end on is that the Chinese word for Easter, you know, Easter is taken from paganism. The 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 name comes from paganism, which I I know that there's a lot of people that have problems with using that term. Let me just let me just you know, and, and you have problems with Easter bunnies, and you have problem with Easter eggs, and I, that's understandable. You don't have to participate in those things. But let me just say this: How amazing is it that missionaries were able to take pagan icons that were meant to praise foreign gods and use them? And switch them around to be icons that pointed people towards the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Usually what we're seeing in Europe today is just the opposite. Churches are being taken and changed from churches into mosques. Those cultural things in Europe that used to point people to the the Christian heritage, the Christian culture, are now being erased from memory. And for the most part, even being used for the purpose of Islam. But in Easter, we actually see that the missionaries did the exact opposite. They took the icons for paganism and changed the meaning so that they would point to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing feat, no matter how you look at it. But it's rooted in paganism. Now, my wife is Swedish, and in, um, in uh, Sweden, they would say glad polsk. Which you know, this polsk comes from the the Jewish word that means passing, but in China we say fuhojia, fuhojia kuila, and fuhojia means <clears throat> resurrection day, or resurrection holiday. Jia being holiday or day, day of a, of a holy day. So you have fuho, which is to be resurrected. And as I leave out, as we finish this Back to Jerusalem podcast, let me just say happy Fuhojia, happy Resurrection Day. Now, you will probably not be listening to this on Resurrection Day, but every day should be a day to celebrate when Jesus was resurrected from the dead for our sins. And we need to take that good news to the heart of the enemy's territory. And when they cause violence, when they blow up airports, when they blow up train stations, when they take lives, that is when the church needs to love the most, give the most, and share the most. Happy Resurrection Day from Back to Jerusalem. God bless you. There's a simple way for us to help ISIS victims. Drink tea. It's that simple. By drinking a cup of Back to Jerusalem Chinese tea, you will bring hope to the refugees displaced by ISIS. It is a healthy way to make a difference. So invite friends and family to your home for a Bible study around a warm pot of organic Chinese tea. Does your church have a cafe? Add Back to Jerusalem tea to the menu. All profits go to help ISIS victims in Iraq and Syria. My name is Jung, and I am an unashamed follower of Jesus Christ. It is considered quite dangerous for me to share the contents of this book, but these are stories that need to be told for God's glory and the encouragement of the church. 
So begins the extraordinary first-person account of a prominent leader of one of the largest underground churches in China. This dramatic true story is told in Back to Jerusalem's latest book, I Stand with Christ by Eugene Bach. I Stand with Christ is a detailed account about a former Communist Party member who took a stand for his faith in Jesus and was targeted for prison, work camps, and torture. See how he goes from the prison cell of China's maximum security prison to leading one of the largest underground house churches of 10 million believers. Be amazed at this true story of suffering, sacrifice, and triumph. I Stand With Christ is available at www.backtojerusalem.com or where books are sold.